This episode of the Millhouse Podcast is proudly presented by AFCO, the American fishing tackle company, innovating fishing tackle and clothing since 1958. Through AFCO's 10% pledge, a portion of the sale of AFCO products goes back to the resource through many conservation programs AFCO contributes to. Learn more at afco.com forward slash conservation. They also gave us a discount code for our listeners to receive 10% off on aftco.com. Use code MILLHOUSE10. That's MILLHOUSE10 at checkout. On today's podcast, we have R.T. Trossett, one of the greatest fishermen of all time, period. In 2004, he was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Game Fish Association. And in 2019, the IGFA honored RT with a Tommy Gifford Legendary Captain's Award, the most prestigious honor a captain can receive. Since 1974, RT has been innovating and refining his trade in the Key West fishery. I have fished with RT, produced TV shows with him, and have fished next to him. There's no kinder, more giving fishing legend I know. It seems like his smile and warm heart are infectious. People love him, but under his sun-worn skin is a lion to be reckoned with. If you are seeking a world record, few will fight as hard or have the ability as RT. Having amassed 239 world records, he's as cagey as they come. I hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. What up? R.T. Trossett. How are you, dog? I'm good, man. Long time. I didn't see you on a falling tide a couple weeks ago nope i haven't been over there too much <laughs> yeah because there's probably no fish in there <laughs> no fish no people to take really so. yeah so what has the season been like for you with the covid 2020 covid 2020 well it started off you know we're enjoying our time fishing alone i mean we've had a great year of fishing but we just haven't made any money doing it so when they shut the hotels down we lost you know all our business right sneak out a few locals here and there but obviously you're glad to have the keys back open we are glad to have them back open yeah come well, on down fishing well the last time i saw you was in the winter we were out riding mechanical bulls <laughs> <laughs> you i think you went over you went over the head of a bull and I, I pulled my hamstring chasing a chicken yesterday so i guess we might be getting a little too old for all this nonsense we're getting a little too old for that yeah i should have never been riding that bull <laughs> no yeah not, not at my age yeah it's, have you always been um that kind of a person where you just want to chase life and, and, and kind of be wrestling with life, if you will? Yeah, I've, I've always been the earliest to get up. I get up early in the morning and just can't wait to see what the new day has to develop. So many times, just sleep in, you know? And I said, no, 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 we got to get up and get going. Get going. You know, I've known you for a long time. We did a couple of TV shows together. I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. But every time I've been with you, you've been just so effervescent and happy and fun. And you have a lot of guides on the water that are so serious out there. And Pat Ford, 
um, some of the others that you fished with. I say, what's the what's the great and your son too, Chris? I said, what's the greatest thing about your dad? And everybody says he's so much fun. <laughs> well, it's good to know. So where do you hide the seriousness? I I don't take too many things too serious, really. I uh, I I tell you the lucky thing is being able to do your job, do a job that you really love. And I was fortunate enough to get involved in fishing early enough. And that's all I've ever done is guided. But two, I know there are a lot of guides that do the, what they do well. And then there are others that really take it to the extreme, like all their tackle is perfect. Their boat is perfect. Are you that guy? Not quite. My tackle is usually perfect. But, you know, I'll, I'll get in and we won't wash the boat some nights. and You know, it's just... It gets overwhelming at times. Right. Yeah, the guy that I was uh, referring to is Mark Croca. He's off the water and home by 2 in the afternoon and asleep by 7 at night. <laughs> so he's got time to wash his boat. When you get up that early, I guess you got to be. <laughs> you got to do that. Yeah, you get tired. Let's go back to uh, your childhood, if you don't mind. Have you always been a fisherman? What was your dad? Uh, what kind of inspiration was he to you in this element? Well, my dad... Uh, and all the elements of sporting stuff. My dad owned a boat dealership. And my grandfather also built boats, fleet wing boats, back in the early 60s. And he built one of the very first fiberglass boats ever built. So I've always been around. And then my dad had a retail business. And I've always been around boats. And he would drag me anywhere I wanted to go. If he went hunting, I got to go hunting. If he went fishing, he would always bring the kids along. And so... I got brought up in that environment, and it was a great, a great way to grow up. And he was a great inspiration in that matter. And you're still a hunter, obviously. Yes, I am. I, what? what how, how do you? How does that weigh out in your passion? Uh, right. I still love my fishing. I mean, that's that's what I do, and I love to do the most. But I like to get involved in what I do, so I get ingrained in it. So in August, I'll leave Key West and. I'll be back in December and I'm going to just haunt my way across the Midwest and out West. And So tell me a little bit about where you go and how you hunt and what are you chasing? Uh, all right. So we uh, I really love to chase whitetail deer. I love to sit in a tree stand and hunt those. So we're going to go to, I'm going to Missouri where we were fortunate enough to buy some property three years ago. I've got a couple, 250 acres out there. Uh, I'm going to go to Kansas, we leased a bunch of property there. I've been drawing for this Iowa tag for, this is my fifth year, and I'm in the draw now. I'll find out any day if I draw that, but I'm supposedly with all the odds and the points and everything, I'll get it this year. Then I go to Illinois for a little while, for a week, and I'll be in uh, two weeks in New Mexico, Raton, New Mexico. What's more exciting, to see a big whitetail come into the stand or... A specific fish out in the ocean, like a big swordfish or tailing sailfish or whatever. Well, nowadays, I think the whitetail gets me pretty excited if it's a big one. You know, right. you don't get to see them very often. And, and, uh, and I think I've got to agree with you in the fact that, you know, when you go fishing, we have a chance to see a lot of big fish throughout the course of five weeks. But when you're in the woods, you get one shot. Oh, yeah. That's, you may not get one shot. You may, you know, may, might be three years before you shoot the deer of a lifetime you know right see the big deer i haven't had an elk shot in four years i'm getting a little perturbed <laughs> we, should, we got a great water hole i do water hole hunting for those so you could just sit and you don't have to do all that mountain climbing that you like to do yeah beat my head against a rock <laughs> <laughs> um tell me about your college years and when did you decide to come to key west well how did that become your path uh well, I majored in journalism. I graduated from University of Florida in 1974. And there just wasn't any money to be made. I was like thinking I was going to be able to write all these magazine articles and work for a newspaper. And, but there just wasn't much money in it. I ended up getting a job as a uh, selling life insurance. My dad <laughs> decided that's what I should be doing at that point. Help me out. And uh, I can't imagine you like that a whole lot. Oh my gosh, that didn't last very long. So, uh, 1975, I pulled up, moved down here. I had my Delmont 88, a 17 Mako, had my Chester drawers in the boat with all my clothes in it. And 
I had, uh, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something saved up and came down here and I was going to be a fishing guide. And I was, when I got, when I finally got a job, I had 76 cents in my pocket. And I, but you knew where you were headed. I knew where I was headed and it's just, it's been my road ever since a right. real easy road it's interesting because steve huff says the same thing when he got out of college his mom asked him what he wanted to do he said i want to be a fishing guide and she said well fishing guides are nothing more than a bunch of drunks and they like to chase women and steve says i can do that <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be how it started i don't know <laughs> but you were in key west well you also too you made mention at lunch just a little bit ago about the sportsman's journal tv show and how yeah. that that show itself really clicked into your being, Sportsman Journal? No, no, uh, uh, the American Sportsman. American Sportsman, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, I remember watching Bob Montgomery and Jonathan Winters on that show. I think Kirk Gowdy was the host, and they had gone to a the Lukaback, which is was a wreck that you had to take a time to run. It was nobody could find it, but only a chosen few that had the ability. And Bob Montgomery was one of them. And I watched him tease up Amberjack and Cobias and Barracudas and catching four and five pound snappers, mangrove snappers. And I said, I got to go to Key West. This is just a place to be. But you had a skiff. So how was that transition from the skiff boat to offshore light tackle stuff? Well, I started out skiff fishing. I mean, that, uh -huh. and I would had a 17 Mako and I was able to go do light offshore stuff. The big trip was back then was just to get to the Marquesas. I mean, that was a that was a hike back then right and we'd make it down there every once in a while and uh you know the tarpon and permit fishing down there's epic so especially back then it was untouched so right it's fantastic i can't imagine uh key west in that generation too because in the late 60s that was when all the writers were down here tom mcguain jim harrison hunter thompson uh and all those guys and the, the movie tarpon came out yeah, I remember so that They movie. were all here when you were here, right? They were disbanding, I think, pretty much then, but they were here. But they weren't spending as much time down here. Right. I remember Jimmy Buffett had that little, I forgot what kind of boat it was, but it was the coolest flats boat on the planet. And uh, those 16 foot, I think it was a Sidewinder or something like Paul. But, um, and then I remember the, the uh, film, it wasn't even video back then, it was a right. film. 16 tarpon. millimeter, right, tarpon. Yeah, and I think I was telling you earlier, but uh, the when they were filming out of the airplane, uh, there was just glare and you couldn't see nothing. And then all of a sudden the boat comes into view and then this giant wad of tarpon over sand, there might have been you know, 100 fish. And you see him getting the cast off and actually hooking up a fish. You know, that's I got chills right now thinking about it. I mean, uh, that was... Uh... The only way you can get aerials out of a plane, now you have the drones that do all that. Right. Which you is so, obviously so much better. But I too remember that movie, Tarpon, and um, how the fish with the slow motion in the 16 millimeter you know, film had such, um, I mean, it's so, it was so, you know, film and video are obviously two different things. And that alone had your eyeballs jumping out of your head to see these the wrinkle of the water prior to that fish coming out of the water. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that you know those early years were some of the earliest uh, shots of big tarpon coming out of the water, and that was pretty. Yeah, I never, you had never seen anything like that. I think we saw a little bit on American Sports when they they did some stuff down in the Marquesas, but right, you didn't you didn't get to see that. You had to come and live it and experience it. Right. What was Key West like back then? Uh, it was kind of a hippie town, really. Just. Uh, a lot of good friends. People knew everybody. Um, kind of like a small ski town, but on the ocean. Yeah. I've, there was a couple hangouts in Chart Room and Full Moon Saloon. And you met there every day after you fished. Took your clients down with you. And sometimes you stayed there way longer than you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> who, were the, who were your uh, compatriots back then? The guides that you were hanging with? And who were, who were your, I would say, your peers? Uh, well, Ralph Delph was one of the people that got started with me down here. We, he started a little bit before me. Um, then back then it was Bob Montgomery was, you know, he was, for some reason he liked me. He was always, he was a little, he was grumpy to a lot of people, but for some reason he, he took me in. I think because I 
worked at the marina where he kept his boat. And I used to get him, he, he had an evident and that's what we had there. So I got him parts and I would have every part that he needed for his motor in stock. Cause I knew, you know, he needed to sure. work it. And he'd come in, you kidding me? You got that? Yeah, we'll have it fixed today. You know, like. And you so, were asking, you got any spare numbers you can give me? <laughs> yeah. Well, he actually gave me my first client. So that was pretty cool. But did, uh, so who started the, the, the wreck fishery? that is so famous down here well bob all those years bob montgomery was the first person i wreck that i knew that could find the wrecks uh, then pat ford he had a lot to do with it. he figured out the the timetables that you needed to use to get to these wrecks like we would run from one buoy uh we'd run from one buoy to the next to this other buoy and time it and then that was 3.2 times the distance it was to the look back. So you'd make a big loop back around, never change your speed. And then you would go by the marker again, do the mount multiplication. And then you would run that many minutes, 3.2 time, the time it took you to get from marker to marker. And that was the time to get to the look back, zero, zero, three degrees. We had compasses that cost $1,500 mounted in big teak blocks. So you could just stay on course. It's got to be aggravating shortly after that once GPSs came into play and the numbers were easy to find or the wrecks. Well, then everybody had it. But there was a good 10 years, I would say, that we ran those wrecks without that. Maybe it was eight years. But Did you ever fish off of any of the wrecks that produced gold, you know, from the Spanish galleons? Like Mel Fisher's uh, and all that? I don't, I, I don't know if I ever fished on that, but there was a lot of the guys that had. And they had the numbers to it. It looked like a big rock pile and it was a pile of silver and then later fisher started pulling up the gold and found a bunch of sinkers on all that oh, stuff and fishing then, line tangled all in it can you imagine hooks oh not knowing what you're getting snagged on yeah i remember one trip i was going to erect a tugboat and it's um you know it's a time run from the marquesas it's out in the sand and you know barracudas mean there's something down there if you see a a log of a lineup of barracudas. So, so, so that's a telltale sign that there are game fish under these barracuda. Yes. It's a telltale sign. It's a wreck or, or some structure of okay. some sort. So I'm in the middle of the sand and I see all these cudas stacked up and I stop. And I had back then, a, I had a Texas instrument, Loran C, which was a single digit. It was, you know, about as bad as one could get, I guess. But it did work a little bit. So I took the numbers down. I was going to go back and dive on it and see what was there. And it was a margarita. And I, I did about a month, two months later, a month and a half later, they were on it and they had found it with, because uh, more of the sand had gotten off of it. Right. But I'd gone that route a million times, or I'd say a million, but and had never seen any kudas ever. And you'd probably pretty much run over the same spot. So. I guess I lost part of my fortune there. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you always gravitated to the wreck fishing more so than the inshore stuff? I mean, initially you were a skiff fisherman. Do you yeah. miss that? Or did you just like going into big water, catching bigger fish? I like big water and catching the big fish. I mean, I, I like the flats fishing. I, I like the challenge of it. But, you know, I had a, did it for a long time and I had a lot of clients, but I never could break into the already seasoned client you know a guy that could cast and fish i was the guy always teaching somebody something and so right it was very frustrating to have people couldn't present casts and they promised they would go home next year and practice and they it would never come did back. yeah they still couldn't <laughs> throw 15 20 feet todd tell me about your season here in key west you know what you fish for in the winter what you fish for in the spring and summer well it started out just saying in the winter time we get all our pelagics show up we have Blackfin tunas, the sailfish, king mackerel, wahoo, um, amberjacks, um, all the snappers, yellowtail, muttons. So there's a great variety of fish. Cobias start to filter down. Um, so it depends on where you're fishing too. The Atlantic is better for the the tuna and the sailfish and that type of fish. And then the Gulf of Mexico is where you find the cobias that'll come to the surface and amberjacks and the big mangroves. And then in the spring and summer. Springtime, uh, we 
kind of delve into permits, start showing up on the deeper wrecks and stuff, and also on the flats. Um, then we get uh, real good barracuda fishing. Uh, and then just lots of, I don't know, the cobias come through the spring. Right. So Blackfin's a- behind the shrimp boat. Bonita's behind the shrimp boat. We were talking about the shrimp boats earlier. I think the TV shows uh, that you and I did for my show, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago, we caught some tarp and then we went out and, and caught uh, some fish behind the shrimp boats. Tell me about how that evolved. How did you guys find um, the blackfin tuna, which was a, bri- a byproduct of getting, you know, all this bait off these boats? Yeah, that was, it was a, truly by accident. There's several people, I think, that kind of found it or figured it out at the same time. But it meant you had to give up your wreck run because if you wanted to do shrimp boat trash, you had to run to a shrimp boat. So you would run to a shrimp boat and get your trash. Then you would have to start back over. If you wanted to go to wreck, you'd have to go all the way back to the Northwest Channel and start your run to the wrecks. So nobody really fished behind shrimp boats much. But then all of a sudden, the shrimp boats came a little bit further to the uh, east and uh, like well, one day I got into them real good or first found them was uh, with Joan, Joan Garista who is now Joe Vernon but we were uh, fishing up on the start of it and there was a shrimp boat close by so I was able to run over to the shrimp boat and as we were getting the trash she dropped the basket of trash in the water and we looked down and, and it was solid blackfin tuna and I think we caught every met. We got a met record on fly and a met record on plug that day. And I think we won the met tournament for blackfins and all those light tackle categories. So that became and a new fishery for you. Then you just fishing behind the boats. Yep, fish behind the boats. So then you just take off and go hit the shrimp boats. Now, how many boats are out there? I mean, does it ever get crowded with competition uh, fishing behind these boats? Now it gets pretty crowded. Yeah. And, they're younger guys getting up earlier and getting to the boats before I do. So, but there's there could be twenty boats running out there now. And back then, you know, there was just a handful. There's nobody out there. Come it. What? Um, so it can get crowded out there then. Oh yeah. It's kind of like okay. the kind of like a tarpon flat. Right. You got to get there early and hold your spot. Yeah, the, you, you you jump from boat to boat and and. A lot of us work together, so if we get a a boat that has a lot of tunas on it, we'll call somebody else over and, and work it. Yeah, and, and now they put the limits on the tunas, so it it's much better because it's two per boat and or two per person, and there was be could unlimited amount. People would keep thirty tunas, and so do they do a lot of catch and release, or you catch your two and leave? Nah, we do catch and release. Right. I mean, it's fun catching them. So right, and the whole situation of having them. So visual. I mean, basically, you drop a, anything in the water and they'll eat it once yeah. they're chummed up. Now, the, uh, those tournaments went away. How did uh, your fishing change? Because obviously, you were a big world record chaser. Uh, you've been uh, inducted into the Captain and Crew Hall of Fame from the IGFA this last fall, and you have a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, your resume is very long and deep with uh, all these records in the fishing that you've done with uh, how many years now? Yeah, Since is, the early 70s. Yes, yeah, I think it's 45 years. Right. 44 years of chartering. So. What was the greatest window of that period of time? Uh, I would say during the Met tournaments and the Rod and Reel Club was uh, together because those people were the ones that were booking us and they were going for their club fish and then they were fishing in the Met tournament. So they were using light tackle, which helped me develop into a better light tackle fisherman. Right. And so we'd, we'd go out and every once in a while you'd catch a world record. You'd just, you know, and then you started thinking, well, if I could do that, let's do this. And we'd use lighter tackle and uh, go after different species of fish. One of, the, one of the big things about that record fishing is having enough fish there to know that if you lose one, it's not the end of the day. You can just re-rig and hook another fish. So probably that's why I like the wreck fishing so much because you could duplicate what you were doing many times. Even if you messed up, you could still catch or have another fish to 
to catch. You had a bunch of mulligans available. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perfect analogy, yeah. Um, what do you, you know, if you take a look at the, the spectrum that, you, that you've done, um, now you have your hunting that you can you can leave all this and, and take a get a breath of fresh air from. Uh, I think one of the things that most people outside of Key West, when they think of light tackle fishing, I think they think of you, Ralph Delph, and Jose. Can you speak a little bit about each of these others? Yeah, definitely. R- Ralph was a a pioneer down here too. I mean, he he started off a little bit before I did, but he had fished down in the Keys and Key West for his whole life. So he had like a, a real understanding of the, of the place. And he just started guiding out of a 20 foot sea craft and brought in some phenomenal catches. I mean, and he had the same ang- angling group to work from that I did, which was, you know, the Miami Met or fishermen and then the rod and reel club fishermen. And, uh, Ralph, I remember he caught a 103 pound amberjack. And it was a 14 foot of water or shallow wreck, which I couldn't believe it, but it's, it was a wreck that these amberjack came to and right in the middle of the quicksands. I remember Steve Huff said that Ralph Delph could catch a blue marlin out of a mud puddle. Well, he actually caught a swordfish at Flamingo. So caught a swordfish where? In Flamingo. Ralph did. Yeah. Back in the days, yeah. But was he targeting a swordfish? No, it was just a just, <laughs> byproduct right of, out of tarpon the fishing. <laughs> byproduct of tarpon fishing. Oh, that's very interesting. But you guys used to live together, right? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was good. His sons, Robbie and Mike, both lived with us. And uh, they were real young back then. But they learned a lot. You know, you talk and fish, and that's all we did. It was a, like a fish camp. We lived in a trailer over in Tamarack Park. So right. We would talk about our days fishing and you know learn from each other we had quite a rivalry going i mean as far as competitive f- fish if i seems every time i caught a really good fish in the matter something the next day he he'd he get, was after it or he'd catch it so but it, it made me a better fisherman right and that's typical of any sports legends and rivals uh in sports they drive each other to a higher level we it definitely was that definitely. how many records did he uh did he retire with? I've never heard a, a solid figure. I know he had over 200. And you're 239. 239. Is there a certain goal you're looking for? A certain number? Well, I'm running out of anglers to do it. We're not like we were talking earlier. The IGFA uh, angler that's going and doing it, you know, as a passion. Right. Is just not that many around anymore. And I think the, like I said, the Met Tournament and the fishing clubs actually drove people into want more world records. So that's when the majority of mine were caught were during that period of time. You're right. Tell me about Jose. Jose was uh, energetic, up and coming. Uh, came from Isle of I think he was Stu, Stu App had kind of protegeed him up there on the flats and stuff like that. Or not protegeed him, but right. t- mentored him. And uh, Jose was very, very active fisherman he'd go anywhere run the furthest distances and he, you know whatever you had to do to catch fish so he was great a great guy a yeah, great was, a great fisherman as well was, as a great person he was a great person great fisherman and always always was a good friend of ours mine what uh any stories about fishing next to jose out there in <laughs> well the good the bad or the ugly <laughs> well, whatever it might be <laughs> no we, we when we had the yellowfin tunas down there it was an interesting story um we get up i'd get up real early and get my bait and get out there and you know i'd get maybe an hour to myself before the other boats could get there with their bait and um so jose i'd be get out there and i get the fish i I got crazy about trying to get a big yellowfin on fly so i'd get out there early and you could almost train the fish if you'd get them up and then start feeding them one pilchard at a time and you'd get a big one come one through and then the next one would come through and the next one and you know, I'd seemed about almost every time I'd start getting them in the rank and file, getting them ready to be able to throw the fly at them. Here comes Jose, and he'd throw a couple netfuls of bait in the water, and then the fish were everywhere. And then you just went to, you know, catch them on general or something. Right. Like 
But you could actually get these uh, yellowfin kind of like feeding off of a conveyor belt, if you will, feeding yep. one one piece of bait at a time. Yep. We uh, yeah, we we just slow the chumming down, and then they would just re- they would find it. The current would be taking them away in a certain spot every time, and the fish you'd just see them turning and spinning and coming back. And yeah, you could actually uh, you could really pick one if you wanted. Interesting. Talk about uh, about your your fishery and and how you you do this whole thing with pilchers is your bait fish of choice, right? Yes, for the most part, it's been that for a long, long time. Uh, you could go out and troll and all that, and you're going to catch on a great day ten percent of what I'm going to catch with pilchers. It's just that much better, and it's worth the time. We'll spend sometimes. The first thing we do in the morning is go catch bait and. You can't really keep it overnight or whatever. And sometimes when it's cold or it's windy, it's a lot harder to get. We've we've spent till noon, even one o'clock getting bait. Before you even head offshore. Yeah, before you even start fishing. How aggravating is that? It could get aggravating. If you have somebody, the people that have done it before, they know to wait. They say, you know, that's okay. We I know we need it. We're good. And then you'll go have three hours of the best fishing you ever had. Right. But so that's our first thing we do is we catch bait. Usually we have bait by 10 o'clock. That's uh, kind of the goal is get out of there by 10. I, I asked your son the other day, I said, what's the what's the greatest tip your father gave you? And he said, dad told me always to get more bait than you think you might need. <laughs> he with the most bait. I mean, the, 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 if you run out of bait, you're done. That's right. right. He with the most bait wins. So Catch uh, more fish. You catch more fish. You can chum harder and fish I'll, harder. I'll tell you an interesting Jose story for us. Sure. Uh, I knew Jose not real well. We were both with Hell's Bay for a period of time, so we'd be at the booth at the trade shows. And remember the show he did on Spanish Fly where he couldn't get to the bait and he took the cooler off the boat and he waded inshore with his cast net and his cooler, got the oh. bait, filled it up, his cooler, took it back to the boat, went offshore and caught a bunch of fish. Do you remember that show by chance? Yeah, I think that, I think he actually, that was in the Bahamas. Somewhere had, else, yeah. Yeah, it was in the Bahamas. They were catching mutton snappers. Right, so Nikki and I, we were down here tarpon fishing probably about five years ago. Nikki, maybe five, maybe a few more than that. We were at Baby's Coffee getting getting some coffee and chasing chickens chasing early chickens. in the morning. <laughs> so we're getting our and it's raining and it's overcast. It's nasty. And I look over to the bay side and I see all this mullet mud. And the bell goes off in my head. Jose and his show netting the you know, the bait and the cooler. <laughs> I said, Nikki. Today is dedicated to Jose. He said, what are you talking about, Dad? And I said, see all that mullet mud? We're going to take the cooler out of the boat. We're going to wade over there, net the mullet, throw in the cooler, put the you know, put the bait in the boat. We're going to go down and catch a couple a couple tarpon. And it was almost like too overwhelming for him to like think that this is actually going to be a possibility. This is cool. Right? So we get out there. He knows how bad I am at throwing a cast net. So it takes us a little while to get up near the mullet, you know, in the bay. And now it's, you know, the mud has sucked our sandals off and, and, and the coral's hurting our feet. And we finally get out there and little Nicky's he's about this tall. And he's got this big, you know, cooler over his eyeballs. And I'm getting ready to throw my cast net because the mullet are right there. And Nicky goes, don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily I got a good throw and we got a bunch of bait. We threw it in the cooler and we went in the and. I don't know, we hooked seven or eight tarpon that day, but that day was dedicated to Jose from that TV show. And, um, you know, just a big wraparound about Jose and what he brought to the game. I mean, he was well, his so- show, Yeah, his show brought a lot of people into fishing. And it, he was so generous with his foundations. And, you know, he's, he was a great guy. Yeah. I mean, you grow up in a great era uh, down here. Do you get a little bit aggravated with... Uh, where it is today, maybe with the popularity of everything and all the boats and the people that are fishing, is it too crowded offshore? I mean, uh, inshore obviously is very tight. Yeah, it's it's crowded, and uh, but everybody down here seems to work real good together. I mean, we all know to anchor stern to stern, and, if, and don't drop the anchor, and the other guy's behind his transom, and right. You know, there's a lot of etiquette that goes on. It's it's the guys that come down that don't know the adequate or, or what you're trying to do and uh they troll behind you and and but if you're fishing say we're fishing on the submarine wreck you know that's a public place so you can't get mad if somebody wants to come in there and do all that right how many how many spots do you have out there in your book uh 
I've never counted them, but I'm. I would say we have a thousand. Are you finding new spots every year? All the time. Are you? Yeah. And how do you find a new spot? Uh, well, we go to an old spot, so we're fishing a coral head or a part of a reef, but uh, mainly like if you're fishing on a, re- a ridge or a whatever, you just leave that and mill around, take a little time in that area, and you you know go up to a mile away from it, and just and then you'll mark another spot on your on your uh, on, on the, your transducer, yeah, on, on the your screen depth sounder, and then. When you get that, you got the GPS. You can put it on there. What What has made you as good as you are? I think just I'm a person, very person. Uh, I don't know what I want to say. I'm I'm very very uh, persistent at things, and I I don't like to not have the day become good. I mean, that's or whatever. So I'm like very persistent at it. I'll stay later than anybody. I usually go earlier than everybody, and I'll run farther than everybody. You're a driven man. I'm driven to catch fish, yes. And hunting the same way. It's like Right. You know, it's interesting because you're like you're like that duck on water. You're smooth on, on the on the surface, but underwater you're kicking, you know, feverishly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what's uh what's the biggest tournament that you've won? That you're most proud of because you did a lot of offshore stuff right yeah we've done a big, lot of big money tournaments yeah we won uh came in second in the key west marlin tournament which was a that was a big money day and how much uh, was that back in the day is uh almost a hundred thousand dollars now the tournaments are had to get that much in a sailfish in a daily but this was back when it was a big deal though right all the butters 80 boats in it do they still have that tournament? No, well, it's now the Hemingway tournament. Right. So it's a, a a fractured piece of it. Right. And it's not near as big. And then I that they had this one tournament that we won four times was uh uh it was a light tackle tournament and it was called it was a, went along with Hemingway days or whatever, but it was a sailfish, you had to catch a sailfish, a tarp and then a permit. And you had to do a 12 pound test. And you had to catch you could you had to catch each one. So you in other words, you could catch a sailfish. You couldn't catch another sailfish till you caught your tarpon and your permit. Right. And then you could start over whatever order you wanted. Right. And uh so that was a great turn, but we had so much fun. It was a lot of running involved and but uh Yeah, you're offshore, then you're coral heads, and then you're right, yeah. what time of year was that turn? That was in April. Yeah. And, and you won that four times. We won it four. I think. I think the seven times. And wow! It was on. And uh, I mean, that's pretty good dexterity to have. Yeah, it, it was a blast. I mean, I remember one one by ten o'clock in the morning. We had a tarp and a permit, two sailfish and a permit by ten in the morning, and people were just freaked. <laughs> <laughs> you want it going running going away? Well, we they 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 caught you. you so they... sometimes you get stuck again. Then it's like right, right. I remember we were fighting. Uh, Try it. We needed to get the permit, and we had him on. And when we had hooked, this fish was like, when we got it, it was like 42 pounds or something. We weighed on a, the Chetillion scale. but it, Monster. We had to fight it for two hours on 12-pound test. Wow. So we were killing our day. It was like, but we had to get the permit. All we knew, there was more permit, but we decided uh, one in the hand is better than all the ones in the bush. Right. I hear you there. Yeah. Uh, are you still tournament fishing at all? Uh, we do occasional dolphin tournament and, uh, I host a fly fishing tournament in Bermuda, which is an invitational tournament, which is really cool. Every year? Every year, yeah. And, and what's the targeted species up there? Uh, we do, uh, yellowfin tuna, blackfin tunas, uh, and wahoos. Tell all me. On, all on fly. Tell me, tell me about the, the your tuna fishing, uh, up there and elsewhere. In, in Bermuda? Just in general, but in, in Bermuda too. Oh, okay, yeah. The, Just talk about the fish itself, because I've caught yellow fins. Uh, I've never caught a blue fin. But tuna fishing, is a, it's a, it's an interesting animal. They are bad to bone. I mean, they're, uh, I used, I've gone up to uh, New Ham- or Massachusetts a couple times, and my best was an 860. It took seven hours to land, we hooked it at five o'clock in the afternoon and fought it till midnight. With how much drag? 
Uh, we had up over 60 pounds of drag reel. Oh, my God. Yeah, on a pin 80 wide, standing up. And what kind of what kind of uh, it, war was that? It was a war. You stumble when you when he when runs. You you wasn't worried about getting pulled over too much, but you could have went in pretty easy, right? And I remember my thighs were all black and blue, and I went out the next day and bought a set of knee pads, basketball knee pads to put underneath the rod belt, so make <laughs> it a little more enjoyable to, if I had to do that again. You probably didn't want to do that again for another year. Well, yeah. Taking no, we went back out, caught one three days later, I think, 680 or something. But the, the, that was a, an angling achievement of mine that I really have been proud of for a long time. That's it, a big fish. There wasn't much people catching fish on stand-up back then. and that was Is that a, a lost art? I, I just think people don't want to go through the, the, pain. the pain of right. you know, fighting them that way. That You know, you see all the shows they're using – the rod holders and the rod holders actually spin. Sure. And so it took two guys from Key West to go up and teach those guys how to how to fight big fish. Well, we like had a man, some. you and uh, Ralph Delph. Yeah, Ralph. Ralph used to do that too. Right. I think he might have caught one over a thousand. So, is there any advantage to doing that in any way? Stand up, fighting big fish. Uh no, I don't think there's too much of an advantage, really. I mean, you're a little more mobile. You can get around the boat. Right. Know, but with that kind of drag, you're not real mobile. You're just hanging, hanging on. on, really. Right. So, with a good harness, though, it's very doable. I mean, it, my back really didn't hurt that bad from fighting that fish. It was pretty much my legs were tired and right. the bruised thighs. Right. But I know that uh, the skiff fishing, that was one of the reasons why you gravitated to offshore stuff was 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 your back right? Yeah. I, Have you always had a bad back? Or yeah, was I've had a bad back. That gave you gave you a bad back. No, I had a. I've had a. We've had it in the family, but uh, I was yanking a bag of shrimp boat trash out of my freezer, and I got mad at it because it was stuck for. And you know, I finally got it loose, and I gave it a good twist as I threw it out, and that I felt something very, just go pop, Pop-ish. and I said, oh, okay, and then three days later I couldn't walk. So, did you ever have any surgeries no. in your back? No, I found a great sports doctor, and um, he prescribes steroids. And every time I gets, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had them for five years. But uh, if it, if I do go bad, it, they give me a Z pack of steroids, and it straightens everything up, lets the muscles align. And do you have a refrigerator full of those? <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to take them more than once a year. Now yeah, I know right. why. I know why athletes love yeah. steroids. You feel like you're 14 years old again. Tell me about uh, Nick Stanzik and catching big swordfish during the daytime. Has that uh, technique gravitated down here? Are you guys doing that at all? Yep, we're doing a little bit. My son does a lot of it. Chris is really good at it. Uh, Stanzik's just the man. I mean, there's nobody can even touch him. He's what, doing what, it What makes day. him so good at that? I mean, is it? He I mean, specializes I, it, and I think is. His big thing, he's right. That's what he does the most. I mean, he could sail fish with the best of them and do all that too, but he really likes to do it. So he 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 stands out amongst anybody with that. Right. But do you guys do a fair amount of that down here? We do a fair amount of it. Yes, uh, especially the summertime, we'll go out and we'll carry the big stick, the electric rod, and we'll dolphin fish in the morning, trolling, and sometime during the day when it gets, you know slower at dolphin fishing will stop you're usually near deep water then and you can make a couple drops so how how so you're looking for a canyon or how deep a water and how do you actually do that there's all kinds of things that uh they like there's the edge of the continental shelf which it's tough to fish because you get hung up a lot on it but at, just outside of that there's uh softer bottom sometimes is good because it, it has mud and all the nutrients are in it and the squid like the school up there so and then there's hard bottoms pieces of hard bottom where the fish like to lay on uh, and they go right to the bottom they'll actually they say that they stand on their fins and the water that lets the current bring stuff to them the gulf stream they're current. just sitting in an easy chair they sit in an easy chair and they I feed mean, they feed or they, i mean is this all it's all speculative it's all speculative, speculation but that's, i've talked to some real good fishermen that's one of the theories is they, they'll just lay down there and then they feed down deep too, yes. Right. They've got that giant eyeball. 
And one of the great or the crazy things about swordfish is, you know, when you're doing the deep dropping, uh, you're fishing in 16, 1800 feet of water. So you're basically bottom fishing in that deep of water. Wow. So when you get a fish on, it's just a tiny tap, tap. You just see the rod tip just or something different, it, or it lightens up a little bit. It doesn't have all the weight on it. I can only imagine how many bites you've missed. You see them, it's there. amazing. You, you you get pretty good at it, yeah. And then you hook the fish up, and uh, so he'll. they just kind of come up. You don't have any idea how big he is. He could be a 10-pounder, or he could be 800 pounds. And then all of a sudden, he gets up through the thermocline and starts to warm up, and... And so the thermocline is a layer of warmer water. Yes. Yeah, so so it's, it's really cold in the deep 1,700-foot water. I don't know what lethargic. the temperature is down there, but I'm, I'm, I'm betting it's in the 50s, probably 60s. But, yeah, then they get real lethargic. And that's why swordfish, they come to the surface in sun sometimes. Uh, and they take in a lot of the light through their eyeballs. And that eyeball's huge, so they could see in very limited spaces but right but when they come through that thermocline all of a sudden you got your hands full and uh there was a great facebook i forgot the captain that had it but they had gaffed one green a 300 pounder and i had never seen a fish i don't know how those mates held on to that thing they're lucky they didn't get killed right it's that sword going around have you ever had any very you know real dangerous calls gaffing fish uh well yeah i've uh we used to keep the Big bull sharks for um, the Met tournament. And I remember gaffing a, straight gaffing a 400 pounder. Um, and I fell right on top of him. He pulled me right into water on top of him. Wow. So I don't think I got wet. <laughs> I got out of water pretty quick, but left the gaff with him. Right. What about gaffing big tarpon? You know, some of our guests have been speaking about, you know, the excitement of, you know, record fishing for big tarpon. Have you ever gaffed a big tarpon? I have. I, I had several records and I had, at one point had the women's 12-pound record, which was 148, I believe. On 12. 12-pound tackle. That's all tackle. Yeah, we spinning, right. yeah, all tackle. And then we had the men's record was 178. And um, you gaffed both those. Fish, I guess we gaffed those fish. I've killed a few. Right. Um, I, you know, gaffing a tarp is a whole set of things and a whole hard thing to do anyway. Right. Because the scales come off. So you, you really got to get ahead of them just a little bit to, so you can angle into the scales. Right. Is the best way to do it. So, right. But it's hard to get ahead of a tarpon on light tackle. So, yeah. What about, um, tell me about um, your fly fishing. Um, you know, a favorite. I I know your one of your favorite spots over over there on the east side of the mainland. I'm not going to mention it, but you've uh, caught uh, fish close to two, if not over 200 pounds. Yeah, of I had fly. A, I had a 200 length and girth one that was 208, and uh, that was back in uh 25 years ago or something like that. Right, just when the tarpon tags had come out. I didn't have a tarpon tag or I would have brought the fish in, but uh, right. it's pretty cool story. My buddy, Nick Malinowski made me a, a fly, a, a fly stretcher for Christmas and he made 12 flies and tied them up IGFA legal, 20 pound tippets. And so I said, Hey, let's try this fly. And I pull this red and white whistler out and I'm over at uh, right at the mouth of call the channel and put it on. Second cast, I hook up, boom, and this big giant fish jumps. And I got him on. Yeah, all right. He runs around to call the marker and comes straight back at us. And I just free spooled. I, I don't know how he didn't cut us off. It's an iron marker. And we ran around it, got to the other side, and uh, fought him for 45, fought her for 45 minutes. And I remember we fought the fish probably 30 minutes, just at an action craft, and I had to guy that was with me was turning the wheel, but not putting in gear. So when the fish would surge to the right, we'd just let him pull the boat, to the, let her pull the boat right. right, surge to the left. I'm sure you've done right. that. And uh, finally wore it down and we were able to get in the water with it. And I said, dang, I don't have a tag. I know this fish is really pushing 200. And right. so I had some monofilament. We measured the fish real carefully. 
um, took the length and then took the girth. And then I spent over an hour trying to rely, revive that fish. I mean, I walked it and did all everything I possibly could. And I was pretty sure it was going to die. So then I decided, you know what? That's not, I went back to the dock, you know, we were home. And I got my buddy Greg's shirts and I said, we're going to go back and find that fish because I let it loose on the side of a flat. So when I went back to, it took us 30 minutes, but I found the channel and there's this flash of silver in the spotlight. And we go over there and the sharks had eaten them. Oh. The whole thing is terrible, but it was, uh, shows you what happens. I yeah. Mean, stuff happens out there. Stuff happens out there. Um, funny story for the people that are watching. Um, every year during a worm hatch, uh, RT fishes on the outside of the certain basin. We fish on the inside, and when the worms start to go off, we go on the outside, maybe run down to Key West. Sometimes you stay at the mouth of we go down or vice versa. You'll be down there, and it's really a great way to like do intel. I'm going to go that way. You call me if they come off here. So right. one time, um, the worms are about ready to go off at, at the mouth, and you're, you're sticking around. I said, I'm going to head to Key West. I'll call you if they go off. So I'm running down with, with my son down towards Key West, and I see off to the left the big explosion. And it's out by a marker out there, and the fish were coming in and eating worms. And I called, I called RT. I said, RT, you know, I'm halfway down to Key West, you know, offshore. And Nikki and I were hooking all these fish, and pretty soon I see you run by right down to Key West. You didn't even stop. And I called RT that night. I said, hey, RT, did you see us out there hooked up? He said, I saw you out there. And I said, how come you didn't come out? And you, would you say you're fishing in a no fishing zone? Yeah, you were fishing it. <laughs> it was a sanctuary. The sanctuary. Take a guess where we were fishing the next night. <laughs> the place. sanctuary. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I figured since you were Andy Mill, you had permission to <laughs> so go in pull. there. So. Yeah, yeah, I get it. They, instead of handcuffing me with my hands behind me, they'd be in front of me. Yeah. The king of tarpon. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell me about. Um, your travels around the world are the best fish that you were possibly mentioning that you've ever caught before. Well, one of the real good stories of uh, going to Australia, we went on a three-week uh, mothership trip out to a place called Willis Island, which was a, it was a hike from uh, Cairns. It was a 295 miles. I think it was east of Cairns. I'm getting older. I forget things. Uh, but anyway, we get out there and first day we're fishing, we're, it was an afternoon. It was, like we got there and we, everybody was anxious to go fishing. And um, I want a, f- a friend of mine to take me along as his, I called him as his rod mall. I brought all the tackle and I got to go on this trip of a lifetime. I couldn't afford it. So he catches a fish and his son catches a fish and somebody else was on the boat and he caught a fish. And then we're trolling along and uh, bam, the rod goes down. Well, to, Tell the story a little bit. I got a little ahead of myself. Uh, I, as a kid, I'd always wanted to catch a dog tooth tuna. I mean, I saw it in field and stream pictures of them. I think off of Vietnam or something they caught them, and it was just a fish that I had really dreamed about catching. Well, now I'm fifty uh, some years old, and I've never caught one. And that was what I hooked was a, a dog tooth tuna, but it was 163 and a half pounds, which was the 30 pound IGFA world record at the time so catch your fish of a lifetime your first one and it was an igfa record line class record was pretty cool yeah what 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 was that fight like uh they make a tremendous first run i mean it's unbelievable burden and then uh they kind of circle back they'll make another run and then they have an air bladder so once you get them at about 60 feet or so they kind of just boom blow up and pinwheel to the top so it's nope. not much at the end. Yeah. And short, we, short and vicious. Short and vicious. Yeah. And we got to fish them on fly and uh, Hal Chittam had put the trip together and he had gone the year before and I think he caught them up to 140 pounds on fly rods and we got them. I got one to 80. We caught quite a few in the 40 and 50 pound range. Well, you've got such great fishing around here. I can't imagine you've got a desire to travel very far to catch fish. And if you do, what would that fish be and where would you want to go? Uh, right now, probably in the Amazon or something, catch a Dorado. That that seems to intrigue me. Right. A pariah. Those fish with the big giant teeth that go down into the bottom jaw. Right. Something weird like that would be where I'd be going. Who, uh, did you, you know, 
we always have to ask, you know, our guests who inspired them because we've all been inspired by somebody or something. Did you have somebody that really inspired you along the way that uh, motivated you that you wanted to simu simulate your life to? Uh, I think when I got down here, mainly uh, Bob Montgomery, who was the guide in Key West, um, I just loved how he fished, what he did. He did the inshore and offshore. He was a great flats guide, and he was also a great offshore fisherman. And uh, I think that inspired me along the way. When I was younger, you know, I just fished. I, I joined a fishing club uh, in Cocoa, Florida, and uh, they've, you know, you just grew up learning from other club members how to fish. Sure. We all grew together. Right. And then when I came to the Keys, it was a whole learning experience. I think for myself, again, it was really to not totally different fish, but a lot of different types of different fish than I was used to catching. And I think Bob inspired me because he, you could see that you could catch him on a fly rod or you could catch him on eight pound test line or right. you could catch him different ways if, and have fun doing that too. Right. Well, obviously you've been a big inspiration to a lot of people with what you've done down here. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think what kind of, what kind of impact am I, am I having on younger, younger fishermen, uh, uh, the younger generation? What would you like to be, how would you like to inspire this new generation? in any way, if there is a, you know, a specific way you would like to have that inspiration be? Uh, you know, the conservation is, is fantastic. Uh, this kill everything that you catch is, you know, no longer works, I don't think. And I think most of the guys that I've mentored along uh, have gotten to that point. Um, Chris, my son, is an unbelievable fisherman. He's, you know, he's me and then he adds a ton of his young and new thoughts on how to do things, which is really great to see. Is he as good as you? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, not, not yet. <laughs> but he's push. He's pushing you. He's pushing. He's pushing. He's, he's pushing the old man. Yep, yeah, definitely. Well, you're talking about conservation, and that raises an interesting question because I know wherever you go in the Keys, the sharks and the reef issues. You go up to Isla Mirada, they talk about the hump. You can't get fish in. You go up to Jupiter, Florida, they talk about the sharks up there. Is there anything that we can do? Because obviously a lot of the fish that we want to catch are on these reefs, and a lot of these fish are getting bit by by sharks. And they're and, getting, and yeah. And now there's a big question and a big uh, maybe controversy, if I may throw that out there, with Western dry rocks right. and about the, ter the permit. A lot of guys are fishing for these permit when they're spawning out there and they're getting nipped by sharks. Right. Do you think by chance, just throwing it out there, that that should be shut down while these permit are spawning by chance? I don't. I mean, there's fish have been coming there for as many years as uh, I've been here. I mean, for thousands of years. And it's the same school of fish. It's the same size. Uh, the sharks are eating them, whether you're catching them or not. They're a little more vulnerable when they get caught. Right. But most of the guides now, if they see a shark shows up, they quit fishing them and right. they'll leave it. Right. And, you know, it's just one of our best spots to fish because there's- They're always we, there. Well, not only that, the, the the other fish that we catch are yellowtail snapper and mutton snapper in this area. It's a, it's just one of those spots that's, you know, it's a go-to spot. So- I know, I understand the position of what people feel and you know how the permitter, you know they're feeling they're getting eaten. But it's the same thing. You hook a fish at Bay of Honda tarpon. Uh, that it, that it, was the it, next question I was going to ask. Do you think the, Key you West think, Harbor? Do you think that those locations might be or should be shut down? Maybe like during the worm hatch when all those fish are in there yeah, eating I, worms and you got seventy boats running around on top of their heads. I don't I don't think so. I think fish. You know, it, it's a public thing. But fishing's for everybody. So I don't I don't want to see that. I think there should be some measures to thin the sharks back out. I mean, when long lining was around, there, we, we didn't have this problem. We had, until six years ago, we hadn't had a shark problem in Key West other than a few hammerheads showing up. Now it's packs of bull sharks on the tarpon schools and uh, in the Gulf. You can't you catch one snapper and the sharks are there, uh, and they're eating all these 
uh, fish that aren't hooked too. I mean, they've got to eat something. Right. And so they're eating a ton of fish because there's more of them. They're taking more of the the stock away, so to speak. Is there any way to, <clears throat> excuse me, harvest some of these sharks in any legal way uh, that it would be palatable to the public's eye? Uh, I don't know. The public, you know, just <clears throat> finning a shark is not the the answer. I mean, right. they do. Sharks are good to eat. I mean, you can eat black tip sharks. People eat lemon sharks. They're, they have, you know, they do have food value. Right. And so I think if you if you took them and just didn't just fin them and throw the carcass in the water, yeah. it'd be better for the public eye. Yeah. What's it's a, a tricky, it's a so, tricky road. Yeah, for sure. Um, where do you foresee this sport in 10, 15, 20 years? Fishing in general down here in uh, Key West. I think it's going to be more uh, more businesses and, or, you know, like uh, a, a, a charter boat, a guy owning a, several boats. I mean, that's already starting uh, on the flat scene. So, that, you know, the whole business, the guy has 10 boats. And, so you have one boat owner, one guide, but right. he owns 10 boats. And right. so he takes a commission from all the other guys other, that yeah, are running their boats that are running their boats right that's starting to happen uh i think it's uh with all the licensing and stuff and clo- you know th- that's what the real thing is i just don't want a closure right like at western dry rocks the closures once they get that then they want more they want more right and there's other ways to go about is there any that. way to regulate the numbers you know because you're a hunter and we've seen this and this is a question i've raised before do you ever foresee a system in the Keys with the, the fishing game where you have to apply for a tag to come fish in Florida? Just like we have to apply for a tag to go elk hunt in Montana. Yeah. I, I in don't. Colorado. In fact, I don't see that because the industry is so big. It's billions of dollars in the state of Florida. I mean, we charge, you know, they charge for a license, and, and that that's as far as I think that probably will go. There was talk, though, of selling fish stocks to recreational anglers in the Gulf of Mexico like they've done for the commercial. Right. So you would go pay $30 for a pound of red snapper. And it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's like, instead of having limits, then there would only be certain people who would get the fish for them. So right. there's some crazy stuff people think up. Right. You like it just the way it is. <laughs> I like the way it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, back in the day, I mean, as far as we had cobias as far as the eye could see. I mean, you go to some of these wrecks, you could catch 30, 40 cobia in a day. And I just couldn't let people keep them. They would want to take 10. All of them. Yeah, they want them all back. And I, I had a self-imposed limit on the boat of two fish per person. Right. Back in 1978. So you were cutting edge with conservation. Trying to be, back yeah. Back then. But just, how, what are you going to do with 300 pounds of cobia? Right. They were all, back then we were... Right. Average 30, 40 pound fish. Give me a, a day in the life of R.T. Trossett back in 1975 Ooh. or 1980. <laughs> and, uh, a, and, a, and a night of R.T. Trossett's evening experiences. Well, uh, we'd always get up to go fish. We never missed that. Even though it might have been painful. Yeah, well, I was delayed a few days. <laughs> my ex- my ex- excuse for that was, ah, they can't follow us for the last ones to go. So. <laughs> But uh, no, we'd get up, you know, you'd early morning always, and uh, go get our bait, do our fishing. Uh, was the bait easy to get back then? Yes, there wasn't there as was much competition. Right, people first didn't know about it, and then uh, there was just wasn't as many guides getting it. Right, uh, you come back in, clean our fish, have a few beers, and roll down to the full moon saloon or the chart room, and. Take your customers with you. Right. They were buying. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to eat, yeah. of course, and drink. Yeah, we get it. Well, what would you see out on the ocean back 50, 45 years, 40 years ago? Uh, I mean, we can only imagine. I mean, I was down here 35 years ago, and I could, you know, I remember the fishing. It was really good, but I don't remember the tarpon fishing being like we were seeing thousands a day. You know, were you seeing that kind of? prolific fishing offshore uh, i'd see it yeah it, 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 offshore when it would migrate we'd see a lot more migrating fish i haven't seen them for a few years now but uh you'd see the big schools coming across and then the marquesas would have 
invariably have giant, giant wads of fish back in the 70s and 80s, late 70s Would you 80s. get tired of catching them? Because obviously they ate so well. No, they didn't always eat so well. No. But, but you see schools of thousand fish, and you couldn't bump them. I mean, you could pull up to them with your motor on, and just they didn't mind. They didn't mind. They weren't they weren't spooky at all. Now you know you just even turn your trolling motor on. Yeah, and they're turning right or left. You have to pull in from a mile away. Yeah, but after this COVID thing, um, you know that it we've it was like going back to that time you saw fish happy again and the fish are happy to and they're eating way better than you know you don't you don't have to feed them as daintily as i've watched you make presentations that are amazing and but they'll take the fly on a short strip now and um i don't know it's just yeah it's it's been wonderful and the guides have all got a treat to be able to see that because all these younger guys had never seen the happy fish like that and and we're never going to see that again. All of them are talking about it. I mean, if you talk to any guy on the dock, young guy, oh, God, I can't believe it. This must have been back in the old days. How was it, old man? That asked me the question. <laughs> just like how just you like saw it. You, just how you saw it, yeah. Um, what are you most proud of? I mean, you've had a very prolific, successful career, you know, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Hall of Fame uh, induction to the captains and crew. Those were big at points in my life. I really was honored to be given those awards. I mean, and the great one was the legendary captain's award. Is you know that's by your peers. It's not for sure. It's not just picked by a panel of people or by an, an accomplishment. It's for a lifetime of achievement. So right. I was most proud of that. But really, I think my kids. I mean, both of them are in. My, my oldest son Robert is a diver. And he's got a very successful dive business. And Chris is, as I said before, a great, great, great offshore fisherman, can fish the flats, can do anything. And I'm just proud and happy that they've followed in doing something that they wanted to do. And they're going to be very successful at it because they're doing what they like to do. And I think that's the, I think that's the key to, to having a good life. That's, you know, I've been doing it 44 years and I, I ain't quitting. And they're your best friends. Yeah, and they're my best friends. That's yeah. so cool. Well, RT, I've known you for a long time. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And I've, <laughs> like I said before, you've inspired so many people. And I just have to say on behalf of everybody and and my son and I, having you as a friend is a, a true honor and a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's an honor to be on your TV show here. So I appreciate it, man. All right. Thank RT, you. you're the man. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Our goal here at Millhouse is to seek out fishing icons and world-class stories of the outdoors. What R.T. Trossett has done in his fishing career is nothing short of extraordinary. It was an honor to sit down with him and recall the early years of Key West and his road to success. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. See you next time.